Good morning again to everybody. Great to see everyone today. Good to have North back with us for the first time since his surgery. Great to see you. And uh, I was given a note just a few moments ago that uh, Teresa Perkins had knee replacement surgery, I assume. It was not knee replacement? Okay. But she did have surgery on Friday, December 1st. She's home recovering and she can receive phone calls, so let's make sure we make those phone calls to check on her and let her know we're thinking about her. Please do that. Teresa Perkins, surgery this past Friday, a couple days ago, and please keep her in your prayers. And uh, let's continue to pray for Joyce Woods as well. I, and I've said this a number of times in one frame of reference or another, I kind of, in fact, somebody one time years ago said, you know, you're the word man. I pay attention to language. I pay attention to grammar, to punctuation. Words have meaning. I like words. Words come alive if you use them properly. But because words have meaning, we need to respect the meanings of those words as we strive to put them into practice in either our spoken language or if we're writing something. How many times do you read something from that somebody wrote and you come away, what, what were they saying there? You know, or they misuse certain words in certain places within whatever it is they were writing down. Words have meaning. So we need to pay attention to the meanings of the words because the meanings behind those words convey the message that those words are supposed to be communicating to us. I want us to think about this morning one simple word, and I just used it, one. What does one mean? Well, let's think about that. And I want to look at a couple of places, texts in the, in the scriptures that use that word and one of those texts uses it repeatedly. What does one mean? Notice how Jesus used the word one in the prayer for, uh, in the prayer for those who would become his faithful followers. That's us, Christians. On the night of his betrayal, the next day he would be on the cross. John chapter 17, and that entire chapter basically is a prayer by Jesus First, he's focusing upon the apostles and goes through a long discourse praying to the Father about the apostles, how he, they were going to be continuing to teach his word and how he wanted God to take care of them and protect them and bless them. Before that even, he talks about how he had already, he had at this point or was just about to finish the work that God had sent him to do on this earth as the Savior, a working Savior. In fact, in, in, in that he was going about fulfilling all of the mission that God sent him to perform upon this earth as the Savior while he was here physically. Then he prays for the apostles. Again, lengthy discourse. And then in 
verse 20, he shifts gears and he focuses upon all who would become his faithful followers, all who would become true Christians through the teaching of the apostles. Part of that would be in written form in the scriptures, but then through their teaching, those who they taught would go on teaching. And it goes through the process all the way up until today. And until the Lord comes again, it's a repeating cycle and it's a refulfilling cycle. So in verses 20 and 21, Jesus says, I do not pray for these alone, he's praying to the Father still, but also for those who, who, who will believe in me through their word, that they also all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Now he used that word one, O-N-E, twice in that text. And notice how he uses that, that they all may be one, those who will become my faithful followers, those who will become true Christians. I'm praying to you, Father, that you will help them to be one. And then he gives a standard for that oneness. He's obviously talking about one in reference to unity, but he gives a standard as to how absolute he wants that oneness, that unity to be among all of his followers, faithful followers, true Christians. As I, as you father are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Now, how absolutely united do you suppose God the father and God the son are? Do you think there's any disagreement between them as to doctrine? Do you think there's any disagreement to them as to, to what this word one should mean? See, Jesus gave the absolute standard of unity, of oneness, when he said, I want all of my followers, whoever will become my faithful followers, true Christians, I want them to be as united as you, Father, and I are united. Now, he prayed for that kind and that degree of unity. What does the word one mean in Jesus's prayer? Now, the, a primary focus of that prayer for that degree of unity is that the world would believe in him and in God, obviously, that unity, that kind of degree, that depth of unity, that oneness between all of those who would truly become his followers, if they would commit themselves to that depth and degree of unity, he says that's going to be a powerful, a powerful influence on people all over the world to follow me as the Savior, to believe in you, God, to become Christians themselves. So what does that key word, key word one in the prayer of Jesus really be? Well, the apostle Paul, he gives us, he illustrates exactly what Jesus meant when he prayed that they all may be one. In the text, we simply look at one verse of scripture that the apostle Paul wrote. He wrote this by inspiration, guided by God through the Holy Spirit to get it correct. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in verse 10, he wrote, Now I plead with you, brethren, he's writing to this to Christians, the church at Corinth. And so he says, I plead with you, brethren, by the mercies of God or in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. 
and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Five different figures in that one verse of scripture that illustrate what Jesus meant when he prayed on the night of his betrayal in John 17, verses 20 and 21. I pray that they all, all who would truly become my followers, true Christians, will be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us. So let's examine what Paul says there, point by point. He says first that, they, that you all speak the same thing. So Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. He's writing to Christians. He says that you all speak the same thing. Titus 1 and verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine, to, true teaching, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. It's not okay when somebody says, you, well, you believe what you want to believe. I'll believe what I want to believe. We'll just all, you know, agree to disagree agreeably. And that does not work. That's not that kind of oneness or unity that Jesus prayed for. There's no disagreement in terms between God the Father and God the Son. They are absolutely united. And when you put them together with God the Holy Spirit, you're talking about the oneness of, of the Godhead. They are all in tune with each other. And so holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught by sound doctrine. And the idea that follows there is both to exhort and convict those who contradict, correct those who are getting it wrong. Do it with love, do it with patience, but also correct them because what they are teaching when they're not following that true teaching, that true doctrine, they're, they're contradicting what the scriptures really say. Paul goes on then in that same verse of scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says that there be no divisions among you. Romans chapter 16 and verse 17, the apostle Paul, as he is closing this particular letter to the Romans Christians, he says, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses Contrary to the doctrine, the teaching, that's what that word means, which you learned and avoid them. There's no room for divisions within the, the Lord's church, the church that he established upon this earth. No room for divisions. We're supposed to be as united, as one, as are the Father and the Son one. You and me, Father, and I and you, that they may be one in us. Paul goes on then. And he says, be perfectly joined together. Now, we understand what the word perfect means. It's absolute. It's absolute. And so, what do we read in John chapter 17 and verse 21 again? That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me. That's perfect unity. And I in you, that they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. When the world looks at the wide, broad-based, general use of the description or identity Christendom or Christianity, all of those different churches that are teaching all kinds of different and contradictory teachings in, in, in relation to one another, 
The world sees confusion. They don't see unity. They don't see that oneness, that absolute degree of, of, of oneness or unity that, that Jesus used as the standard for those who would become his true followers. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, they see something else. And so it's no wonder that so many of them, they, they turn away from Christianity because they say, you all can't even get it straight. You all don't even agree among yourselves. Why should you expect me to change from whatever I believe to become what you believe? We need to get back to exactly what the scriptures say. And then Paul goes on and he says, in the same mind, in the same mind. Well, the same mind. Let's look at Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. The apostle Paul writing to another congregation of the Lord's church. He says, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, he goes on and says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. When you say, well, you know, I understand what you're saying there, but you know, I, I think, well, you know, you're going to change. We're not going to agree. That's not, that's not that degree of oneness or unity that Jesus prayed for. We're all going to the same place. We're just going in different directions. Try that on a trip sometime. Get in your car and say, you know, we're going to go to San Francisco. I think we'll head east from here. San Francisco's to the west. Or I think we'll head north. Or I think we'll head south. Or I think we'll head southwest. I think we'll head northeast. But you're all saying you're going to the same place. You're just going in different directions. We all understand the fallacy of that kind of reasoning. You're not going to get to San Francisco except if you go to the along the direction that will get you directly to San Francisco. If you start going in all kinds of different directions, you're going to go someplace else. We understand that. It's, it's, it's a no-brainer when it comes to just physical travel. Why do we throw out the logical reasoning, the rule book, so to speak, when it comes to our way to heaven? Our way to heaven. God is not a God of confusion, but a peace and a sound mind, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, of the same mind. And then he concludes that verse by saying, and in the same judgment, and in the same judgment. Well, Ephesians 4 verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith, of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So what does Paul say there? It, it's interesting that he's writing to a congregation in Corinth that is experiencing pretty serious division. And so he says, you need to be of the same mind. You need to be of the same judgment. You need to be perfectly joined together. You need to, there needs to be no divisions among you. You need to speak the same thing. That's what Jesus meant by that key word one in his prayer that they all may be one, Father, as you are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. 
Now let's look at another text of scripture. The Apostle Paul writes it. Let's ask the question again. What did he mean when he wrote Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, to another congregation of the Lord's church, another group of Christians? What did he mean by his use of that key word, one, in that particular text of scripture? We read that, and, and, and I, I want to just read it openly right now. But he wrote this, Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. There is one body. There is one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. He's writing this to Christians. So let's take it step by step. What did he mean by there is one body? The Bible is its own best commentary. So back in chapter 1 of this Ephesians letter, verses 22 and 23, he wrote, speaking of God, and he put all things under his feet, speaking of Christ, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We read his letter to another congregation of the Lord's church at Colossae in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18. And he simply put the two words in reverse order, <clears throat> explaining the, exactly the same line of reference and identity. And he, that is Christ, is the head of the body, the church. So when Paul is using that word in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4, when he begins that particular immediate context of scripture and says there is one body, he's talking about the church. The church is the body of Christ. And there's one true church made up of true Christians, and that bothers a whole lot of people, but we have to pay attention to that word one and what it means. And Paul put it down there, and it didn't come up out of his own head. Again, in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, we read all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And literally the Greek word there means it is God breathed. It is God's very word. And so he says there is one body, one body. In, 12, in Romans chapter 12 and verse 5, he's writing to Christians there at Rome. And he says, so we being many are one body. We know what that word means. He's used it repeatedly. It means the church and individually members of one another. We go on a little further in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. By one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. One body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. And then let's drop down to verse, seven, uh, verse 27. He goes on and he says, now you, speaking to those individual Christians, are the body of Christ and members individually. One true church made up of true Christians. Jesus, when he was on this earth and he was getting to the point of going to the cross, 
He told the apostles before him on that particular occasion, in that particular setting, Matthew 16 and verse 18, and I also say to you that you are Peter. He's asked the apostles, who do men say that I am? They said, well, some say you're Jeremiah, some say you're Elijah, some say you're one of the prophets, and they said, who do you say that I am? Peter was the apostle who spoke up at that time, and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock, not on Peter, but on this rock of confession that you have just made, this confession of faith in me, I will build my church, my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Even the powers of death is not going to stop stop it from happening. He knew he was going to die on that cross soon. He said, that's not going to keep it from being established. It'll be my church. He did not talk about denominationalism. He did not talk about churches in the plural. He said, my church, my church. Now, there are many who would say that all of the different churches that claim to be Christian make up that one church. But they teach all kinds of contradictory doctrines to one another. Some believe that you need to be baptized to be saved. Some say, yeah, you don't need to be baptized to be saved. Some even would question whether Jesus really is the risen Savior. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on and on and on. Contradictory teaching after contradictory teaching, difference in names and everything. And, And so how can you call that? the oneness that Jesus prayed for on the night of his betrayal, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us. That word one has a distinct meaning, a distinct meaning. And so if you would say that kind of interpretation, your personal interpretation that says all of the different churches that call themselves Christians, all the different denominations with all of their contradictory teachings to one another. And incidentally, a whole lot of contradictory teachings to what the word of of God says. That they all make up that one church. Well then how, based upon that principle of your interpretation, how do you understand that same word one to be applied to the rest of the ones that Paul brings out in that text? Let's look and see. He goes on and says, there is one spirit, one Holy Spirit. Are there more than one Holy Holy Spirit? Is there more than one? The Bible only speaks of one. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13, Paul wrote by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. What if somebody says, well, I don't like that narrow interpretation of that word. What do you think the word one means? It doesn't mean two. It doesn't mean four. It doesn't mean a hundred. It means one. One. Jesus prayed for absolute unity among his followers, those who would become true Christians. The text goes on and Paul says there is one hope. How many hopes for salvation and eternal life do we have? Is there more than one hope? Paul says there is one hope. In Hebrews chapter six, beginning with verse 18, the Hebrews writer wrote that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, 
we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope. Not of all kinds of hopes, plural, but of the hope set before us. This hope, singular again, we have as an anchor, an anchor, not a whole lot of anchors, attached to a whole lot of different directions and applications of hopes, but this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. Well, Paul goes on. For, Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, Peter speaking now. He says, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Well, what about all those people who believe in some other savior? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14 and verse 6. Peter says the same thing here. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. One hope, one hope. And that blends right into one Lord. Because he, Jesus, is our only hope. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 13, Paul asks the question, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then we read further in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and we, and, and through him we live, or through whom we live. One Lord, one Lord. Would you say there's more than one Lord? Again, there are a whole lot of people out there who claim that there are other saviors. They would look at other <clears throat> beings from history and, and think of them as being lords. But Paul says there is one Lord. One Lord. And he says there is one faith. One faith. Now what does he mean by one faith? <clears throat> Jude wrote in Jude chapter 1 and verse 3, writing to Christians again. He says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for he did not say for your faith. He did not say for some faith. He did not just say for faith in general. He said to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith is God's word. Being applied to Christianity, it's the New Testament. You want to hone it down even more, the gospel of Christ. But basically the entire Bible points to the gospel of Christ. And Jude says he refers to it as the faith, and it is upon the faith, the teachings of the gospel of Christ, the New Testament Christianity, that our personal faith is based upon. Jude says contend earnestly for the faith, and then he said which was once for all delivered past tense. So there's not new, any, any new teaching from God coming. No new scriptures, no, no new books of the Bible. The faith was once for all 
delivered, past tense, to the saints. And then he goes on and he says, one baptism, one baptism. Well, the Bible talks about a number of baptisms. How should we take this? In Acts chapter 19 and verses 3 through 5, the Apostle Paul confronts some men or some people who had been baptized by John's baptism. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? He's asking them. So they said, into John's baptism. Now that was a baptism that we find taught during the time before Jesus began his public ministry by his cousin, John, the immerser. And so they said, we were baptized into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him. John was just preparing the way for Jesus. Believe on him who would come after him. That is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And that fits concentrically with what Peter told that multitude of Jewish men gathered on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when they asked him and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? Peter had just been preaching the gospel of Christ to them, preaching the Savior had come to this earth and he is the only Savior and you rejected him. What shall we do, they asked. And Peter said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus or Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So even though John baptized with a baptism, it was only for a period of time until the Lord would come and command what we might consider the, the uh, Great Commission baptism. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11, but John also referred to a couple of more baptisms. And he says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. And that's what Paul told those men who had been baptized by John's baptism in Acts chapter 19. That's the kind of baptism John was teaching. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now that fire baptism... If I understand it correctly, we don't want a part of that because I believe it's referring to, if you read the context further, I believe you can see it's referring to the, to the fires of, of eternal condemnation in hell. We don't want that. The Holy Spirit baptism, Jesus did promise that to the apostles. If you'll read John chapters 15, 16, uh, 15 and 16 on the night of his betrayal. But, but what about us? What about us? Jesus, and this is the Great Commission baptism, he's ready to ascend back to heaven. He's already died on the cross. He's been buried in the tomb. He's risen from the dead physically. He's appeared risen for a period of 40 days to hundreds and hundreds of people. And he tells the apostles as he's ready to ascend back to heaven, go into all the world, preach the gospel to all creation. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. But he who does not believe shall be condemned. And so that's the baptism that Jesus commanded. And we've already talked about that in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Peter told the Jews 10 days later, 
the exact same thing. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 3, the apostle Paul wrote that it is through baptism that we come into Christ. Into Christ. Baptized into Christ. So, is there more than one baptism? As Matthew recorded the Great Commission baptism Jesus commanded as he was ready to ascend back to heaven, he recorded Jesus' words saying, and, and again, he's simply giving us the fuller picture. Mark gives us part of the picture. Matthew gives us more of the picture. Jesus told the apostles, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. What is a disciple? A follower. What was Jesus praying for in John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21? That all those who would come to me, all, of his, all who would become his true followers, would be as united as he and the Father are united. And so he told the apostles, go therefore and make disciples, true followers, Christians of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so there is baptism as being central to our coming into Christ, to our receiving forgiveness of our sins, to our being saved. Now, what about all those churches out there that say, no, 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 that, none of that is necessary for baptism. You're saved before you're baptized. You pray something called the sinner's prayer, which you won't find anywhere in the New Testament scriptures, and you're forgiven and you're saved at that point. You don't need to be baptized. Oh, you really should be baptized because the Bible says you should be. But it's not for forgiveness. It's not for salvation. It's not to come into Christ. You ask Jesus into your heart and, and that's, how, that, that's how the union joins. It says we're baptized into Christ. It's the opposite direction. So what about it? What about all these baptisms? Paul said there is one baptism. What about when you have denominations that call themselves Christians, they'll say baptism, it's okay to sprinkle some water on your head or hold your face down in a pool of water or rub some water on your forehead or have some water poured over your head. The word does not mean any of those. The word means immerse, bury, plunge, dip, submerge. That's what the word means from the Greek, and there's no disputing over that. There are other words that mean pour and sprinkle, but that's not the word baptism or baptizo in the Greek. One baptism. And then one God, Paul says. In all of these cases, seven, seven different ones Paul uses in these, two, these few verses of Scripture. One God. Is there more than one God? Malachi, the prophet, wrote in Malachi 2 and verse 10, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? One God. What about all those gods, lowercase g, people pray to around the world? There is one true God. Now let's get back to our basic principle, the premise. What does one mean? People try to explain it away in these texts of scripture. 
But one means one, just one, only one, only one. There is the crux of the issue. We have to recognize the meaning of the word and we have to honor that meaning, whether it makes us uncomfortable because of what we have believed in the past or not, if we come to a point of truth that we recognize that we have not understood before, we need to change and accept that point of truth as truth. One means one and it eliminates all other possibilities. One true body, which the scriptures tells us is the church. We don't need to get mad over that. We don't need to get huffy over that. It's God's word. One Holy Spirit, and only one. One hope for salvation, the gospel of Christ. One Lord and Savior, and only one, Jesus Christ. One true faith, Christianity, the gospel of Christ. One true baptism, immersion in water, for the remission of sins, to come into Christ where salvation is found, and one and only God, who is brought out from Genesis chapter 1 through Revelation, amen. One. The word one has meaning. And if we want to be true followers of God, we need to accept that meaning. One means one. And we cannot change that meaning, even in our mind, and be right with God. If you need to change your mind because you have not honored the meaning of that word, we would love to help you. We'd be glad to study with you from God's word if you just ask us. Or we can make the way for you to do that privately on your own. We'd love to pray with you and for you if you recognize there's a change that you need to make in your life. And we'd love to assist you with being baptized into Christ if you're ready to accept the one Savior through the one gospel for the one means of coming to forgiveness and salvation. Baptized into him. If you need to come, won't you come right now as we stand together and sing?